Welcome to the Cartography Podcast. Joining us today is Mark Wilcox, former Director of Strategy at Neriad and current CEO and CTO of 21E8, the Magic Number Company. Uh, Mark is one of the most forward-thinking people that I've talked to with respect to cryptocurrencies, technology, hardware, and software development on Bitcoin. Um, but Mark is constantly bothered and nagged by everybody with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency-related questions, cryptic and vague, half-baked musings about Bitcoin as a world computer, all crazy notions like this. So instead of going too far down that path, I want to use this episode to explore his own personal philosophical views around the intersection of technology with capital markets um, within the context of a moral society. But we'll make an effort to get to some of the uh, Bitcoin-related stuff as well, because I know many people listening really want to hear that. Um, but Al, you're pretty new to Bitcoin, right? Yeah, I mean, to say that I'm new to it, Jay, is kind of an understatement. I barely even understand what it is, except for, you know, in the very kind of high-level way uh, that the concept of it is very interesting to me in cryptocurrency. So I'm, I'm for sure one of those people who would be annoying Mark with all sorts of silly questions. And uh, just to sort of throw it out there right up front, I will be doing that as you kind of talk, Mark, if you don't mind. Hope you can forgive me for that. But I think it's uh, really a fascinating topic and I intend to take full advantage of uh, having you with us. And thank you, by the way, for joining us. Yeah, so so yeah, welcome, Mark. Thanks. Thanks for doing it with us. Um, so I was hoping that you could start us off by just explaining a little bit about um, like where we stand currently in terms of some of the trends within information processing and where and where you see us going like in the near future. Sure. Yeah. I, before I kind of sort of jump right deep, I, I just want to kind of touch on what you're saying about Bitcoin. So it's we're in a weird state of the market where um, actually if you didn't get pulled into the whole cryptocurrency um, hype train in the last decade, you're sort of at a better starting point uh, in terms of where we're at the moment and to, uh, instead of rather having to figure out a million different things and, and thinking you're an expert. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel bad about it. Um, yeah, so I think the kind of, if, if you step back, you know, we usually computing is is seen as a super technical like really complicated market situation um it's pretty interesting what's happened over the last decade where um you had huge consolidation on uh one side uh and huge just sort of disintegration on on the other in terms of the computing market and what i mean by that is that on the actual sort of software side everything got pulled into these clouds and on the hardware side you really sort of um you know like intel is essentially disintegrated in terms of their um, corporate strategy but also their architecture uh, for in terms of actually not just what the chip looks like but the process of making chips has um uh, essentially had to be completely um rebuilt or reimagined from the ground up um so uh we're in a sort of interesting reset uh sorry I have some notifications bothering me uh we're in an interesting reset where uh actually computing is kind of a a, a new frontier again 
because the architectures have completely shifted away from this way that everyone was writing uh, serial code uh, and sort of we had, you know, operating systems and apps and then browsers and things built on top of it, just something that really the network is the is the um, uh, core foundation. It's a communications technology as opposed to, you know, a, uh, uh, a tool. So for Intel specifically, like, is it a lack of foresight um, in terms of like what the the information processing market would look like in the future that they like made their corporate strategy mistakes and like additionally like what companies do you think are um like best positioned for the future and why i don't think they've really made any mistakes if you actually think um that they had an architecture called itanium uh, in the early 2000s which was really uh, it, it was a flop but that was because it was sort of ahead of its time but at the stage that we're in the market, that's really what Intel sort of um, needed. And so they sort of butted heads with uh, the new uh, sort of dominant players in, in technology, which is the platforms are no longer defined by, by the chip architecture they're defined, and the, you know, the operating system. They're defined by the um, uh, marketplaces uh, that... Uh, have all the information, they have all the demand. That's a sort of way to say it, is that previously it was sort of a supply-driven uh, market uh, where there was a huge demand by normal people for computers, and that's sort of reversed where people don't really have a demand for computers anymore. Um, uh, and, and so all of the uh, big companies that have the demand for it and that, have, that are able to pay a premium to monopolize a lot of the, um, uh, you know, uh, chips that come out. Um, this is, you know, Google and Facebook and so on. Um, they're the ones who really get to uh, uh, decide where the market goes. And so they sort of um, struggled a lot because they, uh, you know, they used to be able to depend on on Microsoft um, and on, you know, and on Apple to a, a lesser degree uh, since they switched x86 um to kind of plan ahead you know uh and the reality now is that the uh, code that you know has been built up and run over decades on x86 now it just sort of is is there to run a web browser and connect you connect you to uh, google amazon cloud so how how do you see like um cloud-based solutions and cryptocurrencies related to um, like general inform like in, in the general marketplace like how do you think that's going to change it well they're sort of um, uh, completely opposed to each other but in that way they uh, sort of balance out the it can potentially balance out the market um, a lot of these issues that we have at the moment. So you can see that um, we had sort of the cloud for um, virtualized general purpose processing. You can just sort of run as much code as you like. Um, and uh, that obviously turning into um, an infinite demand for, for compute that has created some interesting architectures in, in terms of AI chips. Um, 
And then on the other side, you've got um, sort of the kind of security properties that would would typically go into a, a, a chip, you know, into a computer architecture going the other way. So you essentially have a kind of a bunch of analytical uh, large scale compute on one side, and then you have a bunch of security um, processing on the other. And so it's interesting in that in one way, these are kind of in competition with one another, but in another, they're really not because they provide very different types of things. And if you can leverage both of them, then that's really just a, you, you, you just have a sort of reset again and that, that the chip that you were, uh, you know, buying 20 years ago that had general purpose compute and it had security features in it, right, is now sort of available in the network. So it's sort of like in, in, a, in a compute market sense, it's sort of the same thing that, you know, already happened to communications and the internet 25 years ago. And what I mean by that is that it, uh, it went from, you know, buying a book to talking to anyone in the world on the internet. And so now you don't just sort of buy a computer so that you can run word process processing software, but you use it as a, you know, one billionth of um, the world's... Um, uh, computing capabilities and communications capabilities in the same light. What companies do you think are like best positioned for the, for the future of um, like information processing market? It would depends because I mean, if we're talking about the future, then we'll probably some future companies that we don't know about yet. If we're talking about what uh, existing companies, are sort of this is a weird question because you say position for right so does that mean you that you're take you're capitalizing on the architecture or you're the ones driving it i mean there's a obvious answer in terms of driving it right which is nvidia they've kind of they're, they're years ahead of, of anyone else um the the big tech companies are sort of i guess past the bubble right but then there are sort of lots of more interesting, I think, um, businesses that can take advantage of the um, architecture that aren't big, right? So it's not like you can go name them because it's probably like, well, there's probably going to be something like 10,000 small, medium businesses that are the size of WhatsApp, you know, that really are the ones who know how to take advantage of it because they go, hey, rather than needing like 10,000 people in cubicles, we just sort of outsource 99.9% .9 of the business and we'll do the 1.1% that that makes all the money. So if I can kind of just briefly jump in here and get a basic sense of what you're explaining, Mark, because again, I'm mm -hmm. you know, not 100% up on all of this stuff. It sounds like what you're describing is that the the market for technology in general, computing, if you will, 
information processing, whereas it used to be uh, based in the limitations of the physical architecture of the you know processors, the chips, whatever the correct term is. It's now been kind of um, centralized in a way uh, using the the internet, for lack of a better term, if that's if that's correct, as just the sort of this larger medium. And it sounds like, you know, larger corporations such as Google, um, you know, that they kind of have a much that's kind of the, the part that I'm struggling a little bit to understand is how those kinds of entities have managed to gain um, that kind of disproportionate control in this much more sort of cloud-based environment? Is it is it by having physical control over the storage systems, the servers, if you will? No, it's just from, from getting data, right? It's from having a big enough need to buy tons of computers. And then the, there's some guys that have tons and tons of computers and everyone is sitting around, you know, complaining about it, but they're not buying computers. So it's a, it's a, natural state of the psychology of of the market because people have just been uh sort of like people can't stop using social media right so facebook is a gigantic company it's it's pretty simple it's not sort of a a um conspiratorial like how did these guys get so much power it's like well because people gave it to them right um and so you can you could complain about um you know market regulation and this sort of thing or as much as you want but we're i think we're moving in the direction of of more like less regulation more free market competition in the technology sector not less right and maybe to some degree uh, the sort of the idea that we could trust um these big companies has um uh made it easy for them to collect a lot of data but actually, you know, most 99.9% of the stuff that they collect is pretty worthless, right? Like at the, at the end of the day, yes, you can go, go, well, they're building all of these huge big data centers, but it's just like if you look at a nuclear fuel, uh, you know, uh, power plant and you look at them building out all of the waste storage, that's all they're doing is they're going like, well, we've trained all of our really special money-making uh, recommender models that help serve ads on things and uh just and we're going to give you free storage for it you go upload all your cat photos as long as you're going to let us you know use them to train our models and serve ads right so there's a gigantic demand so they go build out a whole bunch of data centers and store everyone's cat pictures and so that that's interesting in the because i hear a lot about how there is now kind of this market in uh, maybe again, I don't entirely understand how this works, but selling people's that, so all of this data that we are kind of offering up to these companies in exchange for this free storage and for use of these, you know, these social networks, but are, are you basically saying that, uh, kind of the majority of that data, uh, is, is not valuable or is, is are they kind of in the middle of, uh, a certain process of making it valuable it's only valuable to the extent that you you can um maintain one of these you know big ad businesses right um 
And I think that those ad businesses are bigger than right now than what really makes sense in the market uh, to the point that sort of the whole, the whole rest of the market is just becoming a part of uh, that system, you know, like rather than advertising, rather than being able to get ads out that uh, sell, you know, help you see products to buy, instead people are using ads as a way to, as a sort of communications pathway, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to sort of pay to get your message out in order to make a profit. You have to get more, you, ha- you have to make more money from the message that you put out uh, than, than what you put in. But because so much of the market is based around these, um, I mean, it's not sort of the real economy, right? So, like people don't need to infinitely keep buying, uh, you know, new t-shirts. So you get to an upper limit on on what things can become, and then that goes into culture and, and so forth. So because the stock market is really sort of in the center of these conversations, is there's a willingness on behalf of users um, to not compete because they're sort of buying in on that monopoly, right? Sorry, that was a relatively... Uh, convoluted answer um, the other thing that I would say is in just in terms of software so but I, so we're talking obviously about about how the platforms collect the de- this sort of data that this gives them the scale of operation but they also sort of provide that as a platform to the rest of the market so if you look at someone like slack you know they run on Amazon cloud so they don't have to invest huge amounts of money and in, in running infrastructure, they just go and um, uh, you immediately use the resources that are already there. And that enables people to build these pretty ridiculously profitable businesses that grow extremely quickly because they don't have the physical uh, time constraints of building out a business. The issue that uh, comes into the architecture is that they're really just taking code that was designed to run on a physical computer and push it into the into the cloud. So this is where the sort of you, you end up having a, a separation in, in the two markets because you have platforms that run everything on bare metal to the point that they design their own chips um, with complete access to the information that goes through that, those platforms um, versus people who sort of have are on an outsourced model uh, and they don't even have the knowledge, they're, they're not even exposed to the kinds of problems needed to efficiently structure their software. So you have a weird sort of um, hybrid uh, banking uh, kind of market show up of this these big companies that get self-monopolized by the stock market that is, um, people are okay with them having access to all the data. That's a way to sort of manage risk. And um, because as an investor, you want them to have a monopoly. Uh, and then they sort of do this banking uh, model, which is that they rent out your data uh, and they to advertisers, and they rent out their servers to uh, you know com- competitors. And those, the pricing of those servers is based on um, sort of 
arbitraging the inefficiency in the software and in the way that the, the data moves around um, through what's called a virtual machine. So basically they fit, you know, 10, 10 servers worth of software on, uh, you know, or hundreds uh, on a single physical machine. And so instead of those efficiencies uh, essentially helping uh, a, uh, a small business, um, well, not small, but, you know, a, 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 an internet, a, another website, right, um, uh, serve millions of users, uh, instead they're sort of paying uh, for the, the cloud vendors to uh, optimize that for them. And that's why you have this sort of weird cycle with venture capital. So basically that, that space is negotiable uh, by raising money. I guess I was just going to kind of the question that comes hearing all of that is where do you kind of see all of this going? Well, I think it's, um, it, it, we're in a, a really kind of, if we step back 20 years, right? Or maybe 50, maybe step back to the 60s, well, it goes, start of Moore's Law, right? You had amazing progress uh, year after year after year uh, that was completely, you know, all the media and culture and, and everything was sort of defined by what was uh, possible in the late, latest iterations of technology. And uh, what sort of happened is that, and this kind of happened with the dot-com bubble, but it's sort of had a, a second wave, if we want to use that term, uh, you know, um, just recently, in that the uh, expertise at, in terms of information management and uh, running systems and Coordinate, coordinating people and uh, capital, right, is much, much more effective inside of, a, you know, a company like Microsoft uh, than any government in the world. So they're sort of, essentially, um, you know, it's a, it's, an, it's a huge success that, no one has really figured out how to think about yet. And that's not going away, right? That's what people need. We don't want all this sort of old bureaucracy of paper pushing and secrecy and things um, uh, and uh, just huge waste and inefficiency. But the problem is that at the moment, we uh, it, that that's how things get funded, you know? Like that growth is in the market that's going to private companies and they have permission because they, you know, everyone has these pension funds that just go into making those companies bigger. So at the, at the state that we're in, you essentially have to go, Hmm, which government, right? And so mm -hmm. countries like New Zealand have always been in that position because we're just tiny, you know, we have to just, the government is focused on like doing its job. If you want to go chase money and power, then just hop on a plane. And and we just buy software from Microsoft. 
So as this all um, accelerates and more data is being demanded, supplied, stored, like, do you ever take a step back and have like a personal opinion and moralize a little bit on like what impact this is having on civilization in general? Like, do, do you ever think about that? Yeah, of course, all the time. But I don't think that's uh, it's to do with data collection. I think that there's way more information out there in the world, things happening, you know, than just what people get in, cap- in, in like their TikToks. Um, and uh, the use of that information, right, is all defined by advertising. So, so if we, if the question is, what you know, do we think that the that advertising is playing a negative impact on the world? Well, no one really likes ads, and it's actually easy, much easier to block ads on the internet than than television ever was, right? Um, and just because we are sort of counting things in zeros and ones doesn't mean that um, uh, there's more actual information um, sort of um, physically being distributed. It just means that we have a um, few monopolies, right, that have a, obviously there's a surveillance aspect to it, um, but I think that that's separate from just the physical inefficiency growing of, of computers. Because where, whereas before we were just, you know, writing down some text files and those were don't take up that much storage space. Now we're just doing, you know, streaming video, putting an internet security camera and just pointing at the, the street for, you know, a decade. There's not that much interesting stuff going through there. Well, you know, I think it's interesting now because it's starting to be leveraged, like again, like the data that they have collected is starting to be leveraged against individuals, like to prevent them from having careers or like get promoted and like really just to ruin people's lives, like if they don't have the correct um, political opinions. I mean, I think there's something to be said about like the evolution of the data being deployed solely for ads. Like I think yeah. it seems to me like it's really like evolve. It's it's the data collection is evolving into um like like new avenues to from to to be deployed into does that make sense yeah but i don't i don't think it has anything to do with the technology because if you look at something like uh soviet union right they had cinema okay yes they equal ability to manipulate put propaganda out to manipulate their population um and uh, you put similar sort of people would have similar sorts of experiences of um, uh, being cancelled, I guess. But in twenty twenty, being cancelled is like, oh no, so your your Twitter account got banned, not like you were sent to a gulag. So I think <laughs> that you know, I I would actually. It's interesting you mentioned that, Mark. Uh, it happens to be a case. My parents uh, are immigrants from the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I have a little bit of, of insight into that. And I think, uh, I mean, I've related a story um, on this podcast before about just kind of the, the nature of, um, what am I trying to say? The, the differences both in what we understand as censorship and just a, a media uh, kind of soft control in general between uh, a more kind of what people think of as a more overt 
top-down dictatorship, if you will, like the Soviet Union versus um, something that maybe you could describe as a little bit more indirect, which is what we kind of have, I would say, in, in the West. And, uh, you know, I think, I think there's, there's in, in a lot of people's minds a much more extreme version. I mean, of course, they sent plenty of people, you know, to the, to the gulag, and there was plenty of direct oppression in in a lot of these uh, Marxist countries like the Soviet Union and still, I think, to this day in you know, China and North Korea, of course, places like that. But I, I also think people underestimate the extent to which it is relatively indirect in most people's experience. I mean, first of all, I think it's worth pointing out that um, still, you know, the, the United States manages to incarcerate more people than the, the Soviet Union ever did, first of all. Uh, but it, it's also worth noting that um, it wasn't as though people generally in the Soviet Union had this kind of direct fear of, you know, being prosecuted by, you know, the, the law for saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. It really was a, a much more kind of socially enforced, uh, just, you know, culture of conformity, I suppose you could say, uh, ideologically. And um, I think in a lot of ways, we, we really are, you know, moving very much in, in a direction like that, and in many ways, in, in much more extreme fashion. I, I mean, I think it's all, all doublespeak, right? Like the, the West, you, you talk about oppression, but the oppression is like, so much not so much freedom we have too much freedom right it's a sort of peak liberalism and and like you know you guys aren't aren't social justice warriors but you sound a little bit like one complaining about <laughs> these, like the big powers that be oppressing you right and it's like yeah but hey i i, I so last year i lived in i i did a, a design program in russia and I actually lived in this building that uh, was called the House on the Embankment. Um, it used to be the, called the House of Government. And so this is where all the sort of the top brass of the Soviet Union, this was like the biggest apartment block in, in, in Europe um, in like the, the 30s or 40s when it was built. And so when Stalin did his purges, 40% of the people in that building were just they had all these hidden staircases and everything built out there through the complex and just, you know, people would, they, that entire lives, every single thing that was going on in that building. And these are the people who are the so-called powers that be, right? Um, mm -hmm. Everything was written down and documented by the intelligence service and people were just disappearing. Mm -hmm. Right. Like it, 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 life was pretty good. The, the problem is that the technology is so addictive and so amazing and so cheap and so ubiquitous, right? That people can't stop putting down Twitter. And so they think that because they're so addicted, that means that they're being oppressed when actually they just need to like put down their phone and go for a walk. <laughs> I couldn't agree more, by the way, for the record. I mean, I've talked about this on here before, but I don't even own a, a smartphone. 100% uh, agree with, with that take on it. Um, and I mean, to, to clarify a little bit, like when I, when I speak about, um, oppression, I mean, I suppose it's, you know, I don't know if I want to get too deep into the, you know, the language here, but it, 
I guess I'm I'm kind of using that as a very general term to describe the extent to which people are sort of subsumed in a system where whether you can certainly ascribe it to their own choice, their own actions, right? I mean, you're absolutely right that that's the point. Is that people choose. people have a, a option that they're, they're making an active decision to participate in you know uh, hierarchies, and so they're fighting it out. It's the it's no special thing about 2020. You know that people have been sort of fighting for crowns for for as long as we've been around. This is exactly the conversation that I wanted to have at this point right here. So like a lot of people in our mutual circles, Mark, um, approach economics and policy, like with this hyper-capitalist Randian or like libertarian lens. Right. But Mm -hmm. to me, like the social engineering problem really highlights like a massive blind spot in this, um, approach. It's like, what I mean by that is like, if you have truly unrestrained free markets, like this inevitably leads to like the use of the technology to prey on the instinctual and, or, and like biological responses and desires like that we have as humans. So like eventually the market will end up molding like the human. So like the concept of free choice, like in a late stage technology market seems like pretty absurd to me. So like, I guess the question would be like, with, with this in mind, like, how do you see the relationship between humans, technology and markets? I mean, I think it's easy to talk about social engineering because that's what you see, right? That's the direct experience that you get in these sort of, uh, platforms that are too big that, uh, have too much money going through them for really what their, their purposes is to provide. Um, and um so you got to ask yourself is that the direct action right are people are those businesses in in the business of social engineering or are they just in the business of um making more ad revenue um and so i think at the moment because we're in this sort of uh, huge correction right? Like decades long correction that is extremely psychological, uh, that the, it's going to take a while for people to figure out like, oh, we just had a really big monopoly and, uh, we needed to just have some alternate websites to go to. Um, there is a sort of difference in terms of the technology, right? So the technology that, uh, Google, sort of builds for itself uh will take you know another 10 years to be uh commodified and um become available to to normal people right and that's going to increase the amount of information processing that that people are doing and so-called surveillance that that the market is doing um but uh if 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 we're talking about um how the market impacts uh, human behavior, well, the market is just human behavior, right? So it's just people inf- influencing each other. And what we have is a, a really weird um, sort of world where there's sort of the old economy 
having to try to survive in the new economy. And then everyone complaining about these amazing, huge uh, creators of value um, having an impact, right? And we actually need, you know, tens of, we need hundreds of, of Googles, not, not just five. So if, uh, if I make kind of one little point of Claire, maybe just uh, I'll kind of frame it as a question yeah. to you guys. Maybe there's an aspect of this that I'm not really understanding, but you know, it seems to me that what, what the two of you seem to be describing as uh, a market, in fact, has quite a lot of top-down control uh, by government means, and I would say ultimately all government authority does rest upon military force. Uh, you know, none of this, what we're calling a market. What makes you think it's government? Well, as you mentioned earlier, that is where funding comes from. So for instance, we know that no, these large companies, I'm sorry? No, it's not. Governments fund, like they do, they have a central bank that does interest rates and then like private banks do funding, right? That certainly has, uh, I mean, the, the, the interest rate alone uh, certainly has a, an impact. I mean, the, the issuing of, of currency, you know, as far as I understand it, at least certainly has an impact on the economy overall. But I'm also talking about the more kind of direct fund. I mean, for instance, companies like Google and, uh, you know, large tech companies like that, are they not, do they not get startup capital from entities like InQtel and, uh, you know, indirect venture capital funds like yeah, that sure. to get funding so, from the company? Sure. Like every company has a venture arm. So like there's military venture arms. So who cares? Right. Indeed. Um, the internet. Well, I mean, right was publicly it was like military fund like government funded in terms of the technology and you know the government doesn't own google well i think i mean i guess that's kind of what i'm pushing back on a little bit i think that that's um I, they certainly don't own google uh but it seems like it would be uh, inaccurate on some level to act as though, or to, to speak about it as though there is no control over that process. The situation that we're moving to at the moment where these companies got so big and got huge amounts of influence is leading to government regulation, government control over them, right? Like Peter Thiel was saying that Google is a traitor for, for you know, having technology go to China. But the U.S. was doing that to themselves, so you know, I, I you really got to question how much power. Like, it's sort of a boogeyman, right? Who know the government, but in reality, these companies are running everything. You know, they're much more effective, and so who owns them? Well, regular people on the stock market. You guys are investors, right? No, sir. <laughs> This, this, is actually, uh, I mean, this is actually a point that Ellen and I disagree on. Like, I'm, I'm very much of the opinion that, like, corporations actually use the government, like, use local governments, yeah. national governments to enact laws, like, that, that will benefit themselves and help that, like, and help them grow as a, as a corporation. Um, but mm -hmm. I wanted to push back on one thing that you just said before, um, like, related to uh, technology and, and human behavior. Um, like, it's true that the humans are doing the behavior, but... Like my view on this is that 
technology is capital, like the technology corporations are capitalizing on like eroding the moral center of societies and like natural human sure, yeah. behavior, right? So like there's a clear market incentive to destroy like at like like the human as he behaves. Like there's there's a market incentive to alter that and to constantly mm-hmm. alter. And like it's true mm-hmm. that the behaviors are human behaviors, but I think they occur like as a result of the quote unquote social engineering. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I, my only point is that it's humans uh, controlling other humans through technology, like they do any sort of, um, you know, way to influence people. And technology, right? Like we're in this weird thing where technology supposedly just means computers, but technology is just anything that makes something more efficient or better or, or whatever, right? Like a sword is a is a piece of technology. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the, the one way that, that I would, so the point that I'm kind of trying to make is I think, uh, a little bit broader in the sense that I, I, I feel it's important to recognize that this does not take place in kind of like this vacuum of free market activity, uh, all, you know, Google, for instance, taking them as an example, they, uh, exist in, you know, what we call this, uh, this polity of, of the United States. They are a, uh, you know, on some level, they have physical infrastructure that they're interested in protecting. They are subject to the same legal framework that the rest of society is. They depend on, you know, the coercive power of government in order to ensure that they can continue doing that. Um, so I. I guess it, it's it's really just kind of like this. I don't know exactly how to describe it. Just like a broader point that I'm making that nothing uh, within a so-called free market economy can take place without the enforcement of you know what that society determines are property rights, and it requires a central authority with the monopoly over the legitimate use of violence to enforce that. Yeah, so this is kind of what I mean about um, the difference between the two economies, right? So if you think that the US US sort of dollar stock market is the economy, then that's not really the, the case, right? That's sort of a, um, a, a part of a global economy, right? And so the mm-hmm. sort of, yes, there are people trying to put these regulations into place now, but, you know, like they're mostly doing it in defense of these sort of global, uh, uncontrollable, you know, mega, mega companies, right? That, well, we are still complaining about the fact that they're just really, really good at doing business, right? Um, so um, it's, you you can't just go, well, we want to need to get rid of them because then you're just sort of going back to, you know, last decade, uh, last century technology, right? Um, but the sort of, because they still reside within the domains of these uh, countries, then they just, they, and the way that they, 
you know, measure their success is in a traditional manner, uh, is that they can't really operate efficiently, right? But I wouldn't call Google like, yes, it's a sort of based in, in America, but like all of these companies are holding, you know, hundreds of billions of ca- dollars in cash offshore, right? So they're really part of a unregulated global economy, but there's also just the weirdness of America from, you know, the, the since World War II of being the global um, monopolist, you know, country, right? Like when, when America goes and just uh, blows up the Middle East another time, is that respecting property rights? I don't think so. No, certainly not. And, and I totally agree with you. Like I, I'm focusing a little bit less on the, um, the strict kind of national concept of government. I mean, it, it kind of, in a way, I think you're, you're pointing out there's a little bit of a, of a duality, almost a power sharing between, you know, national governments, which clearly appear to be uh, losing their, you know, I guess their control in the, uh, in the context of all of this globalization of, of not only economics, but just, you know, social media and, and just the, the globalization of culture that that creates. But I still want to make the point that all of this is enforced ultimately by military force. And that military force is not exclusive to national governments. It is theoretically exclusive to national governments, but national governments cooperate quite well. Uh, I mean, for instance, I used to be in the United States military and I served with plenty of people who were in the New Zealand army as well as, uh, as other national armies. And, uh, you know, there's a, it's, it's extremely complex and dynamic, but the, the general point that I'm making is it is very much top down. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, what's the point of a military, right? Is to protect the people, make it a country, a safe place to live. I think America has a really, America is the exception, right? So American military is designed to exert American influence and power and go get a bunch of Americans killed for some political reason, right? I I would not say that the New Zealand military has much control and influence over New Zealand. I mean, maybe that's in America, but we don't have a perfect history with America. I I think that a lot of that is due to um, like the military's influence uh like via capital markets in the united states you know like if if it was such an outsized like if it was such an outsized influence in new zealand i would imagine that it would have more of an influence there but it seems i think you're right it seems that it's unique to america where um like the military companies are worth so much money that they end up dictating like not only u.s foreign policy and specific laws that would apply to them domestically but also like international intervention military intervention do you feel that it's uh the military influencing the capital markets or the capital markets influencing the military definitely the uh capital markets influencing the military yeah i just want to make the point that uh while that's there's definitely that's a very clearly true part of the story i think it's also important to point out that the capital markets could not exist without the military well, Bitcoin has like, proven that to be false. Well, that that's an interesting that's an interesting point. I mean, I I, I think and you I certainly say that Bitcoin cannot much without the military. 
but I think that that's military, <laughs> you know. And that's and that's kind of what I'm saying is that it. So I'm focusing, like I said, a little bit less on the kind of national aspect of this. I, I, I the point I'm making is that just because it's globalizing does not necessarily mean that that is uh, a entirely decentralized process. There's certainly a decentralized consumer driven aspect to it. Uh, but there is also a lot of what you guys have been referring to as social engineering, you know, that takes place both at the national levels, at the local levels. I mean, uh, I think there are a lot of different ways to see this. Uh, I tend to just take a pretty zoomed out focus uh, across history. And what I see is that the process of social engineering, you know, which started uh, with the enforced schooling has essentially led to a consumer system that is very rapidly globalizing and uh, by no means is is uh, military force absent from any of that. It's certainly at this point in history, it happens to be kind of based in the United States. The United States is kind of acting as the uh, primarily military arm of what I think is a very globalized top-down system uh, and again there are there are organic kind of spontaneous elements to how that has developed but um, I, I certainly see a very a lot of top-down activity kind of directing the directing that process you know I think I think the the Space Force idea is a really interesting pivot mm -hmm. for the military because it, it could be used to like unify uh, like like as a unified objective between nations, like in order to devote capital towards without destroying each other's capitals. Like it's actually really compatible with like a globalized world, if, if that makes sense. I, I would say the opposite. The, the space force kind of stuff is an attempt to go back to the way that things like worked before where there wasn't this antagonistic exploitation relationship between the government and, and the, you know, uh, industrial complex right but like as we were saying before that these big tech companies have really um, uh, they're really the 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 economy now right is that yes there's some sort of weird uh, feeling of of uh, threat from the old economy which was built up around you know GM and so forth and uh you know shift away from or like Northrop government you know I can't pronounce them properly um it, all the sort of military contractors and everything um that helped run the government right well now there's sort of uh oh we have this extra industry that is defining the new era right like Elon Musk is just like launching satellites so uh so right with the whole conversation has been very american centric and that's normal for uh, americans right but, <laughs> but like cool there's like china is doing this as well right and huawei is like super open it's like yeah we think that like communist party technology military is all part of the same thing it needs to be structured together and that's because they how they run their country right so the confusion is entirely on america's part because because they're all busy continuing to ignore the rest of the world and just argue and bitch with each other 
about who has more money or who has a nicer car or whatever. Um, because someone is doing too much to help protect the country, right? And, uh, and so, and, and meanwhile, while, while everyone gets shocked at these big tech companies growing in size and effectiveness and everything, um, like Trump got voted in because he was saying like, oh, China has a, they, they have a big technology industry that we completely depend on and they are the military. <laughs> right? It's like, I don't think Google is going to start building ukes anytime soon. <laughs> I hope you're right. This was actually one one other question that I wanted to ask, Mark. So before you um, mentioned it would be better to have a thousand Googles, but like, let's say over the next 10 years, I mean, do you think we move closer to having a thousand Googles or towards one Google and one Amazon? Well, it's a sort of an interesting thing, and this comes back to sort of computer architecture, is that. Uh, is Bitcoin one one system or is it, you know, millions? They're sort of both, right? So do you anticipate that they will all be using, uh, like that they'll all be operating on the Bitcoin network then within like, say, a midterm time frame? Does, does Google operate on the dollar network? They operate on the internet. I think it's just the same, right? Right. Well, then it, you're kind of making a conflation, though, between um, like it would, even though they would all be on, I mean, it's not that every company that's on the dollar is like just controlled by like single handedly by the dollar. Like it's not like they're still. The monop like the monopolization is still going on on the dollar. So like, why wouldn't that happen on Bitcoin? Um, because of the uh, ability to, um, so you, it, it's it's an open market, right? So when you go to Google, um, basically. Um, or, or when 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 people are buying ads on Google, no competitors, no one else in the market can really see what's going on. You can't really tell what's going on from their you know, um, financials. So if so, really, your only sort of uh, sense of value, right, comes from being able to just buy their stock. And because the value of uh, something of all of these sort of big platforms comes from having everyone as a part of the same market, right? Simply having three Googles at the moment, right? And the way that they've uh, built things up um, is going to create less value. It's going to make things more expensive, right? Um, and that's actually kind of what has happened, except it's, Areas that Google can't afford to go up, mark, you know, sections of the market that Google can't uh, is not capable of going after. Like they tried to force Google Plus on people and it was a complete failure, right? So you just have more and more of these companies popping up that that 
do different aspects. Um, so the difference with something like Bitcoin is that it massively, it, like that same relationship that a startup has when they go to a, a um, cloud platform, right? Where they don't have to worry about running a gigantic infrastructure. They just sort of deploy their software. Um, that can be applied to people wanting to compete. So it, once that whole sort of trend comes full circle of uh, not having to physically buy lots of infrastructure, there are companies that you can just outsource it to. Um, once that applies to the platforms themselves, which you could look at uh, TikTok as an example of an extremely fast growing you know, competitor to Instagram, Facebook. Um, it's not so hard to see how Google can end up like MySpace. So you think that the structure of uh, like the, uh, the structure of Bitcoin allows for increased competition that would reduce uh, like the prevalence of oligopolies and monopolies. But I mean, like what, what is it that would prevent that um, process from just turning into like, like along Marx's line of thinking, like, why wouldn't it just lead to like, it's true that there would be more competition, but it's, it's not clear to me why that wouldn't also just lead to monopolization. Because the real monopoly isn't Google and Facebook, it's NASDAQ. You can't, you, you don't have an option to some, go somewhere else to buy Google stock. That's why Bitcoin is interesting because it is a listed on all these different places, right? Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that. So like, I was hoping you could get into, um, like how you see the cryptocurrency marketplace in general, like, like how would you assess the current state of crypto and like the state of development and like the speed at which it's taking place? Like, like, what do you see going on in crypto right now? Um, that, so the thing is that I'm, you, I have to preface it. Like I'm not, I'm not really sort of an investor, right? Like, yes, I've sort of, uh, bought some cryptocurrencies and, and so on, like at different stages. I've never really, I would have said made good investments and that's because they're mostly markets that are basically social or perception based. Um, in the same way of the stock market, like people are investing with the idea of the price going up, um, as opposed to some underlying utility, right? So it's sort of an extreme, extreme version of the, of the stock market. So essentially anything that is happening in, in, if you go and look at what, like, what's the prices of things and so on, and then you dig into what are the conversations, you know, what are those actual technologies, what are the differences between them in terms of public information, um, that is just giving you a source, a, 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 a sort of sentiment as to how people are thinking. And if you look at the crypto market over, you know, the 10 years, it's gone through complete, yes, you have a few that stick at the top, but it's gone through huge, big changes, um, 
that you know in the regular economy would would take 10 years each probably um uh in terms of the i would say perception or the understanding of the technology in terms of what things have value um and at the moment because the internet is basically purely inter well, rather than internet the um the web is purely a sort of consumer or communications infrastructure um, that the um, anything that's going on in in the cryptocurrency market that's that has a lot of value is sort of just tapping into that so there's not really any actual because I, I'm like an early adopter of, of probably most uh, most apps and, and kind of new interesting technology. Um, I couldn't tell you like a single Ethereum app that has sort of grown to the point that I want to use it. And I think in the early days of Ethereum, that was probably more true when they're like, hey, let's make a prediction market, right? But now it's more about just investing in the idea of prediction markets and outsource the using it to someone else which is a behavior that you kind of see in the regular uh, economy where, hey, getting people to buy Teslas is too hard. What if we get the government to force them off people? So specifically related to Ethereum, like what, what is it that's preventing like apps from being built that people actually use? Like, like what is it fundamentally that's preventing that from happening? Nothing. Ethereum is designed to be a sort of um, a, a tokenization system, uh, and it's extremely slow because of that. But it's very easy to sort of create essentially a derivative, any sort of like JavaScript style contract you want to write. You just come along and do it. Now there's a whole whole incentive system of people creating these derivatives to sell them to people, and convince you not to get in on the game that they're playing, right? But it's, I mean, it functions. It's not going to, they, they, and they always say like, hey, it's not a cryptocurrency, right? But they're trying to make it confusing so that they can avoid too much uh, critique. But it kind of like continues to do what it does, which is basically they start out with, you know, the DAO and, they, and DAPs, and then they go into ICOs and tokens. And now they go into this sort of derivatives contracting. And the, the weird thing with it is that because it's sort of, um, it's like an, uh, uh, or, or, I can't pronounce this, like Orberus or, or uh, whatever, you know, like the snake that eats itself. Um, it, because it doesn't scale, it means that there's a constant pressure to evolve or die because all of the contracts that are running that don't um, run at sort of a high enough, high enough uh, abstract derivative abstraction to encompass all of the things below it, um, then they get priced out of the chain. Um, what's going to be interesting is like, well, they've gone and written a bunch of these interesting contracts and applications. Uh, what's going to happen with that? And I think that's, you know, Ethereum 2 isn't, isn't sold as, it, it isn't anything close to being um, guaranteed as the successor of, of all of the things that are on Ethereum at the moment. I think that all of the, that code and all of those applications can 
can go across a whole bunch of chains and there are like there are quite a few competitors i mean it's, it's really amazing to see it's really amazing to see what what goes on with like the icos on ethereum so like there these people just like release these these tokens i mean for people who don't know and then instantly it could get valued at hundreds of millions or billions of dollars and then you've just got like a developer team with that, that basically just like printed themselves like billions of dollars but like so so like what what what's the next step in like after let's say Chainlink reaches like a 6 billion dollar market cap so like what do they do next after that uh if you looked uh yesterday apparently they're all selling all their the developers selling all their tokens so that's same same with all the other ones but like so like what is the like the like the corporate roadmap though of a company oh but they're not they're they're just the market is the capital market right they sell their tokens cool there go off to start another project so like what in in like five years you think a lot of these companies that have raised like an enormous amount of money and gotten people to buy all these all of these tokens like do you think they're just like sitting on the like do you think they're just sitting on that money or like like what what is the actual next step in in the evolution of these companies i can you call them companies well yeah i was just struggling yeah, with that actually like like would you call change a company I don't probably don't know enough about it to be honest. I mean, there are companies that run Chainlink nodes. I'm sorry. Can I can I ask you to just kind of explain in a more general sense? Uh, you guys are talking about Bitcoin and Ethereum. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of explain uh, cryptocurrencies relative to what most of us understand as traditional currencies issued by central banks, and I mean, really just briefly kind of talk about why that is interesting or valuable and maybe bring that around to whether or not they're companies and kind of make that distinction. What are these things? Well, I mean, this has always been a, um, I don't have the answer to this. I think it depends on what, how you're using something. Um, and obviously Ethereum has made it really difficult because it's sort of um, like comparing a silicon rock to a gpu right um it's like yeah it's kind of the same thing but you could just program it to do anything you want um mm -hmm. so it, trying to like what's what's an electron you know well you can describe uh -huh. how what an electron is and how it relates to things but trying to, uh, you know, then go from that to everything in the universe is, is would be pretty difficult to explain, right? It's like, well, fair enough. That makes sense. Anything. Um, I mean, what? Yeah. What so I guess that kind of brings me back around to what it what it seemed like Jay's question was, which is, what do you think it will be used for? I mean, it's used all the time to just keep track of itself, right? Um, actually, there was an interesting, so Russia did, they, they've done their sort of crypto bill recently. And I think in that they, they said from their perspective that Bitcoin is a, like a cryptocurrency is a claim on money, mm -hmm. which is technically what maybe a, a 
US dollar bill originally was. Mm -hmm. Except because it's because it's sort of a self-referential thing instead of, um, at, you know, so like a Bitcoin is a claim on uh, a Bitcoin. And, but through the ledger, right? Uh, it's a claim on the ability to uh, write to the Bitcoin ledger or to use resources in the Bitcoin system. Um, that it's sort of... Um, more secure in a way because instead of relying on a on a bank to give you back the gold you just have a sort of thing that it's simultaneously um, a note made out of gold i don't know so that's interesting i mean i uh jay and i briefly discussed this before we started but i mean this is a subject that's that's very interesting to me that the kind of nature of money as just a medium of exchange uh you know to kind of give a little brief history based on my you know amateur understanding of it uh money for the most part in i guess you could call it you know primitive systems or, or before there were kind of uh uh, centralized economies and governments, money was mostly taking the form of commodities. Uh, you know, famously, the, the Roman army was paid in salt. Uh, you know, uh, Native Americans before uh, the, in the pre-Columbian age exchanged seashells, etc. Uh, that evolved into a system where the uh, the keepers of those commodities, let's say they were stored in warehouses, uh, you know, began to realize that it was much more efficient uh, to simply issue receipts for a certain amount of commodities and not have to constantly, you know, measure those out and give them out to people. And uh, people basically just started trading those receipts uh, effectively as IOUs. And those receipts or notes, as they came to be known, basically is what we understand to be uh, paper currency. Um, you know, in the modern age, uh, I suppose maybe on a global level, there's some extent to which currency is backed by commodities like gold. You could argue uh, oil is a is a commodity which which backs money to a, a certain extent. But to me, that whole concept is very much based in um, a central issuing authority having a certain amount of control over that process. Uh, you know, they, they control how much of that medium they give out. And I'm wondering kind of how cryptocurrencies, uh, you know, can, what's the difference? Sort of like how um, people think that, you know, Amazon or Google are, really really centralized architectures but then if you go inside of a warehouse then it's got tens of thousands of different computers um so it's sort of a logical um centralization and then you could look at democracy as like technically supposed to be like this as well where you have a market for governance um so sort of hey at a global level you can have different countries essentially voting on how much of the money it's to them, right? And but have that much more resource market based um, 
I think I like to think of money just in in a much more sort of human behavior context. It's like a game of musical chairs, right? It's like, well, you need to make sure you have some money so that if uh, music stops, which we we had a good demonstration of like this year, right? Mm-hmm. Like a certain time comes, it's like, okay, you don't, yes, let's stop talking about what is money and uh, make sure I've got my share of it, right? Because sometimes you need it because you have uncertainty. So I think that it's sort of like, hey, if you have more than you need and you want to park your resources somewhere to get over a period of uncertainty, then you need to park it somewhere. And that just turns into money when people sort of do follow, follow the same logic. That was an interesting description you just gave before, Mark, um, like in relation to Elle's question, like referring to Bitcoin as a self-referential uh, claim on itself, like <laughs> to, to think of that as a form of currency is really interesting. So I, I, w- I also wanted to ask you before we let you go, um, like what problems does your company 21E8 actually solve? So, I mean, I, we've kind of touched on, on these ideas in, in a sort of broad way, right? Which is uh, the, how difficult it is to um, kind of leave uh, these big ecosystems, big tech ecosystems, um, but also uh, the separation between kind of how we think about um, value um, in, in respect to technology uh, and then a bit about sort of money. So what we're trying to do is really make it so that you can tie the value of a particular message to the market, right? so that you can tell if someone is promoting something to you that is that someone is feeding you particular information that you have a way to figure out whether they are on your side or not and that's purely from trying to introduce trying to use the sort of scarcity that bitcoin has figured out um, as a way to uh, add scarcity to um, and there already is sort of scarcity and mostly around reputation um, in social networks um, but we want to sort of add that scarcity back to um, uh, the internet and we'll extend it to the uh, rest of the internet so that when you're sort of um, uh, say for example you have a product being um, distributed for free, maybe that company should have actually been paying you to, to use that software. Um, say you're giving away your data for a free service. How much did you pay? You know, what was the value of that information that you paid? Um, and if there was some benefit in terms of the broader market of pulling a bunch of information together, then what's that, uh, value specifically. Um, Google is always uh, creating new products, giving them away, killing competitors, and then shutting them down after three years. Um, Maybe if that was in a separate company, then, you know, they would be like Zoom's uh, stock price. Um, So we're sort of kind of creating tools that make it easy to take that 
aspect to Bitcoin and put it into social media, put it into uh, the way that you build software organizations and the way that you develop uh, software and run your infrastructure so that we can hopefully try to measure a lot of things that are intangible at the moment. You know, it's interesting. The more I hear you talk about technology, the more it reminds me of uh, like Curtis Yarvin's philosophy. Like, do you identify much with the idea of like formalism and transparency? I mean, there's an, a, a sort of market efficiency that you get from operating on the same standards. Interesting. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I guess actually one last thing before you go. I wanted to ask you, what is the, like, what is the state of New Zealand right now um, in respect to uh, coronavirus? Like, is everything shut down there um, in a similar way to what's going on in Australia right now? It wasn't until last week. We're back inside. Um, they, it looks like that latest uh, little cluster is nothing major. So hopefully we go back to business as usual. Um, I think that the concerns for us isn't really what's the day-to-day -day life like, because you know, I mean, last week it was pretty, pretty normal. Uh, the questions are more like global ge be geopolitical and, um, and sort of, you know, biosecurity. We've always had super strict biosecurity, um, cause our uh most of our economy is based on um you know the cows not getting a virus um so <laughs> uh so the question is what's the rest of the world going to look like in two years and is our border going to be open um, yeah what do you think about uh just the whole situation in general uh particularly uh, you know, as it relates to New Zealand, just how this is all being handled. Any thoughts? New Zealand basically is a country with small government um, and it's pretty isolated. So there aren't a lot of other people, other sort of big companies and um, people from other countries really seeing us as a, our government as an opportunity to get cash. It's much easier to just go to US or go to um, Europe as a, uh, ways to do that. So we're largely on our own in terms of getting things done, which has typically meant that our government is relatively practical on the way that it deals with things. And obviously, like a lot of American media likes to frame that uh, into an American context, where if an American leader did that, you know, for 300 million people, that's different from basically um, someone who's not that much different from a, you know, regular Kiwi saying like, oh, this is what uh, the rules say that we need to do. Like, we don't really have the time to argue over things infinitely. Mm -hmm. Well, what's the, what's the population in New Zealand? It's like 5 million almost. It's like the population of Singapore spread out across the a country the size of Italy. Sounds nice. All right, well, let's end it here maybe. Um, I think people are going to be able to listen to this a couple times and think about some of the stuff that, that Mark said. I think it was a good conversation. Um, thanks for coming on, Mark. Cheers, it was fun. Mark, we really appreciate it. Thank you very much. 